I'm here today with Dr. Michael W. Waters. Michael's the founder and lead pastor of the Abundant Life African American Episcopal, excuse me, African Methodist Episcopal Church in Dallas, Texas. As a pastor, professor, award-winning author, activist, and social commentator, Waters' words of hope and empowerment inspire national and international audiences. Uh, featured in Ebony Magazine among America's emerging leaders, his work and ministry has appeared on just about every uh, television channel that you can imagine, as well as all of the important uh, news outlets and, and magazines. Um, he's also addressed, um, you know, many uh, organizations, uh, you know, throughout the years. Michael is the author of several national award-winning books, including Stakes is High, Race, Faith, and Hope for America, which was winner of the National Wilbur Award in nonfiction, and the children's book entitled For Beautiful Black Boys Who Believe in a Better World, which was winner of the Goddard Riverside Children's Book Council Young People's Book Prize for Social Justice. And we're going to talk today about his new book, um, Something in the Water, a 21st century civil rights odyssey. So Michael, it's really a pleasure to, um, to join you here today. Thanks so much for being with us. Brian, it's my great honor. Thank you so much. So I kind of gave a quick overview of your background, but maybe it'd be helpful for folks to get to know you better if you just kind of gave your own version of that, if you could, please. Sure. Well, I can fairly easily be summarized between faith, family, and activism. Um, I am a fifth-generation ordained minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, my mother and father are uh, ordained ministers within the church. My great-grandmother was one of the first women ordained. Uh, we believe the first woman ordained in the Amy Church in the state of Texas. Uh, my great-great-great-grandfather, William Leake, a man born into slavery in North Carolina, who came to Texas following emancipation, uh, went on to bring 5,000 individuals into the church in Texas and was one of four founders of Paul Quinn College, which is the oldest historically black college west of the Mississippi River. Uh, even those within my family who are not active in terms of ordained ministry uh, serve the church and serve community faithfully. Uh, my grandfather was a teacher and coach for over 44 years uh, before becoming an assistant superintendent and retired only to become a county judge and county commissioner, was very active in the NAACP, so active in fact that the Ku Klux Klan gave him a visit at his home uh, as a means to deter his activism. Uh, my grandmother taught for 33 years in homemaking, also very active in leadership, active in politics. Uh, some of my earliest rem um, remembrances as a young man visiting them during the summer, these are my maternal grandparents, is traveling with them uh, for the Texas Democratic Conventions or traveling across the country with them for various uh, church conferences. So they were very, very active uh, in service. And so those things inform me, this idea of faith, in particular faith that calls you to action, calls you to activism, calls you to community building. All those things are a part of our family lineage and heritage and something that I pray that my wife and I are passing down uh, to our children. Uh, faith is very central to who we are and how we, uh, how we operate in the world, uh, what we feel is our call in the world. Uh, but also, again, within my family, there are artists, there are 
business persons, uh, they are musicians, they are, uh, you know, it's a smorgasbord of gifts, but I think everyone, or a good number of us, uh, believe that those gifts are best used in service to God's people and to all people. And, and those things have uh, given shape to, to who I am. Well, what an amazing legacy you know, that you're following. That's really wonderful to hear. Well, I, I'm, I'm tremendously blessed and grateful for the family that I was born into. I wouldn't trade them for the world. And my only hope, again, is that we are building upon uh, the groundwork that they laid, uh, the foundation that they laid uh, to, uh, to help others. So, um, as I mentioned, you know, earlier, you've written several books. So before we get into the new book, could you tell us about, you know, the previous books that you've written? Sure. So actually, the first book I wrote uh, was entitled Freestyle, Reflections on Faith, Family, Justice, and Pop Culture. And it was just that, reflections on a variety of topics from my own family to issues that were emergent at the time. For instance, issues around uh, the death of Trevon Martin uh, and Jordan Davis. Um, it included some interesting considerations with regards to hip hop and pop culture, uh, which is part of my academic background. So it was a smorgasbord of ideas. That's how I like to, uh, to share it. Uh, but it all dealt with this idea of manifesting hope in the world, that that is our primary call and responsibility to manifest hope, to bring about hope, to be vessels of hope in the world. Uh, the next book was Stakes as High, Race, Faith, and Hope for America, I think which was a deeper look uh, into the legacy of white supremacy as relates to atrocities and brutalities against, in particular, black bodies. And it followed some of my activism along with some of the very significant events during the early moments of the Black Lives Matter struggle. Um, but also included that link between the struggle of today <clears throat> and the struggles of yesteryear. So you had, you know, uh, commentary on Mike Brown and the Black Lives Matter struggle, but you also have uh, eulogies to persons such as Muhammad Ali and Amelia Boynton Robinson, who was on the bridge in Selma and was vital to the uh, Voting Rights Act and the work uh, of bringing about the votes of the people of Selma. And so that was stakes as high. Uh, again, a, a view of the brutalities and atrocities that had come amongst our people and arcing that to, uh, to our history. Uh, For Beautiful Black Boys Who Believe in a Better World is a children's book. I never fancied myself a children's book author, <laughs> uh, but uh, it is based on uh, my oldest son, our oldest son, who's now 14 years old, and because of the work and engagement of his parents, has uh, seen some activism up close and personal, but is also a very uh, intuitive and curious individual in general who pays great attention to what's happening around him and was wrestling with uh, the horrors that he heard unfolding on the news, the things that he heard me talk about, things he saw me read, things he saw me watch related to white supremacy, police brutality, gun violence, and uh, the various conversations that we had over that time. And so uh, through our conversations and engagements, um, it kind of came to a head 
when a young boy by the name of Jordan Edwards was killed in our community, young uh, 15-year-old young man shot by Officer Roy Oliver while he was merely riding in a vehicle. And I was asked to speak at the vigil for uh, that young man. Our church also hosted a citywide uh, direct action training and memorial for him that brought in national leadership from the NAACP, Sean King and others who came to the church. And um, after we got home, our son came in our room and asked to talk. And uh, when he began his conversation, he talked about everything he was tired about, tired of people hurting each other, hating each other because they were different. About a week or two after that, I was on a flight to Los Angeles along with my wife to speak for a conference and that conversation bubbled up to the surface and I began writing and such became for beautiful black boys who believe in a better world, which is to help children navigate the issues of gun violence, racialized violence, police brutality uh, through the voice of a child. And I'm grateful that uh, Lonnie Ali, Muhammad Ali's widow, when she read a first draft of the manuscript uh, felt uh, enough of it to offer the support of the center named in her husband's honor, the Ali Center, to also write a discussion and activity guide uh, to support that work. And so wow. not only wonderful. do you have the book, yeah, it's amazing. Not only do you have the book, but you have resources for trusted adults to engage the subject matter with children. And uh, unfortunately, we knew that uh, it would only be a matter of time before another incident emerged in the news for which uh, this resource would be needed, but I'm grateful that it is now available and I've heard from persons across the country who've used uh, the text uh, to engage their young people around these subject matters. And that brings us now to something in the water, although I already have some books that will be uh, published later uh, this year and next year. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm really, you know, thankful that you did that uh, beautiful black boys book you know that that's uh, an important area that I don't think there's enough you know books in well that's what I've been informed and <clears throat> that was not my intent necessarily uh, but this just what happened and that it was a resource that's now available and I've been amazed at the number of churches synagogues mosques even independent school districts I've done a number of of lectures and presentations and readings with uh, school districts across the country are also seeking to use uh, the book to help their students and teachers. Excellent, excellent. Um, I should have mentioned earlier that in addition to, you know, just recently having a book birthday uh, for Some Things in the Water, uh, Michael actually uh, and his wife recently just had another child. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Uh, my wife gave birth to baby justice on Christmas Eve. <laughs> what a Christmas present. It, it is, and, uh, and we're grateful. Tremendous young man and uh, just fits in with the family. Uh, our, our other children uh, dote on him quite often, and we're uh, just so delighted that he's joined us. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Except that you probably don't get to sleep as much. Uh, yeah, the, the sleep has not been as accessible <laughs> as <laughs> it was, but it's coming. Yeah, yeah. It just takes time. <laughs> <laughs> So um, as we mentioned, Michael's latest book is, is called Something in the Water, um, a 21st Century Civil Rights Odyssey. So let me just read um, the blurb on the back cover of that. 
Take an epic journey through America's racist past and present with award-winning author, pastor, and civil rights leader, Michael W. Waters. From the riverbank where Emmett Till's body was recovered and the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, assassinated to sites of recent racial violence like Charlotte Eman Charleston's Emanuel AME Church Massacre and El Paso's Walmart shootings and his own history-making moments bringing down the Confederate monuments in Dallas. Waters ruminates on sacred spaces and places that have shaped America's racial tension and our hope that a better day will come. Um, here's a couple of comments from, from some uh, folks who had uh, read the early version of the book. This one's from Brian McLaren. Every white Christian like me needs a black pastor and teacher. In Reverend Dr. Michael Waters, I also get a prophet as well. Um, <laughs> a really powerful thing for uh, Brian to say. Here's Jim Wallace. Michael W. Waters is not a preacher. He's a leader, not just a preacher. He's a leader, an organizer, professor, author, and poet, and perhaps most importantly, a prophet. This is a compelling and transforming book that's coming out exactly the right time. And uh, the book is, is, is kind of a compilation of poems and essays. Um, you know, I would say all, all or most all around, you know, different aspects of social justice. Uh, the title of one of them I, I found to be pretty interesting. Uh, it's called Dallas, America's Capital of Functional White Supremacy. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about, you know, what's contained in this book, Michael, and, you know, how, how it came to exist. You know, it's amazing. Um, as I began reflecting on recent journeys uh, across the country, I saw this unique opportunity to share uh, not just my story, but the story of our nation as we have sought to uh, address uh, the issues of white supremacy that are really uh, a part of our DNA. Uh, from about 2019, beginning of 2019 to the beginning of 2020, when travel was uh, available to us safely, I reflected over the expanse of that time and uh, the places that I visited, the people who I visited with, and I saw that I believed that God had given me a unique experience. Um, it's very rare that you can, within a year's time, uh, testify that you have studied the scar tissue on the head of John Lewis while in his company, as well as the scar tissue around the eye lost by Sarah Collins Rudolph in the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church. Uh, it's very rare that you can say that in the same calendar year, you have stood at the banks where Emmett Till's body was retrieved and also stood with the husband of one killed in the massacre in Walmart, uh, that you stood in the oldest uh, AME church in America, in Philadelphia, uh, which, you know, speaks to our nation's founding and studied the fact that uh, the same street that the Declaration of Independence was written upon, was written, uh, is the same street that uh, persons taken, kidnapped in slavery, uh, were housed before being stored at the auction and the hypocrisy there. Uh, to reflect on uh, standing on a beach with 5,000 individuals uh, preaching for a conference, uh, for a festival put forth by Pharrell Williams uh, called Something in the Water, on the 
leading up to the 400th anniversary of the beginnings of slavery in America, only about 100 miles from where the 20 Africans were first docked, uh, to, to be there, uh, looking upon the Atlantic Ocean, which is also, in my estimation, a watery grave, and in that same calendar year be in Los Angeles, uh, in that area, uh, going through uh, places where the Watts riots uh, uprising took place. It seemed like there was something there, Brian, something that needed to be uh, shared, particularly given this, uh, the context in which we live, uh, the very uh, painful reality that white supremacy is on the rise again, uh, that there are more uh, white supremacist groups and racialized groups organized in America uh, at this time than any other point, that their hate crimes are increasing. Um, but I was also struck by uh, Dr. Eddie Glaude and something that he said after the uh, Walmart massacre by a young man that lived just north of where I am now. I mean, he uh, traveled 10 hours, 650 miles from uh, the Dallas region to go to Walmart to unleash that harm upon innocent people. When Dr. Glaude uh, spoke very vividly about this not being an aberration of, of who we are, but that this is us, this is who America is, this violence, this commitment to white supremacy, the crushing of black, brown, and indigenous bodies to the earth. And reflecting on all of these things and my activism and engagement in the midst of it, really gave birth to this idea that there is something in the water, uh, toxic and tainted, something in the waters of America that must be purified. Uh, and it will take all of us working together to bring about the purification. And so that's really the inspiration. You get some poetry that are part of my reflections. Uh, again, I've, I've never published poetry before, uh, but this was an opportunity uh, you have prayers that I've prayed, uh, prayers that I've prayed at vigils, prayers that I've prayed uh, before the U.S. House of Representatives, which, frankly, I'm still surprised they allowed me to pray that prayer, uh, because in that prayer, I talked about uh, tyranny and uh, trying to pray against the very threat of, threat of tyranny, which, uh, given recent events, uh, does not seem as radical as it did at the time that I prayed it. Um, to eulogies that I have given in the public square uh, for persons mainly failed by police brutality, uh, to other addresses or after significant events within our nation. Um, the chapter that you referenced, Dallas, America's functional capital white supremacy, really leans into uh, some of my work here in, in the city of Dallas. And the unfortunate uh, historical harms that are with us in Dallas that frankly aren't known by many people, not only across the country, but even in Dallas as well. Very few people know, but the city of Dallas had the largest Ku Klux Klan chapter in America at the turn of the 20th century. Mm. Uh, at its height, one out of every three eligible men in the city of Dallas were members of the Klan. Wow. Dallas still boasts the largest single day induction a new Ku Klux Klan members in American history. Uh, over 5,000 men along with 8,000 women, I mean, excuse me, 800 women in the auxiliary. There was a Ku Klux Klan day at our state fair of Texas where we actually got in 
uh, with a lower price if you wore your regalia, if you wore your hood and robe. Uh, there were marches, night marches, terror marches in the streets of Dallas along the Trinity, Trinity River, uh, River Bank. Uh, black people were abducted and brutalized, lynched. One man who was accused of, uh, one black man who was accused of having a relationship with a white woman was taken to the Trinity River bed and the leader of the Klan in Dallas carved KKK in his head with acid and they dropped his body back off at the luxury hotel down. <coughs> Very few people know this history. They don't know about the bombing campaigns in the city of Dallas. One so strong, so powerful in 1951 that it was given the distinction of being the bomb of the year in America. Um, and very few people know that today, according to the Urban Institute's report from 2018 uh, about inclusive cities and recovery in cities, uh, that they named the city of Dallas the most racially and equitable, racially segregated city in America. Hmm. 274 out of 274 American cities with a population of over 100,000. And so we have experienced great harms, and many of these things are included in the book, uh, contemporary harms, historical harms. So many people were killed by police in Dallas that in 1987, there was a congressional hearing on the matter here in the city of Dallas. Very few people know that history. Or that the Cato tribe uh, was literally massacred along uh, the banks of the, quote unquote, now we call it the Trinity River, uh, which really gave birth to Dallas and other North Texas cities. So you can link the horrors to the very clearing of the land to create an opportunity for the city to be born. And so um, I link that history in particular to our struggle to bring down Confederate monuments and to bring about equity in our city and uh, try to bring all this together because I believe that in many ways Dallas uh, is a microcosm of America. Wow. I had no idea about all of that. You know, uh, not having ever really studied the history of Texas myself. Uh, that's just. It's, it's stunning, Brian. Brian, it's absolutely stunning. I mean, Dallas is the ninth largest city in America. Dallas has the largest or fastest growing business district in America. The fastest growing arts district in America. Our region is now the fastest growing in America. Uh, Dallas makes more new millionaires than any other city in America. You're talking about tremendous wealth and opulence here in our city. And yet we also lead the nation in food apartheid. Uh, people have to travel miles outside of their community in order to find uh, food and fresh uh, produce in a certain part of our city. Uh, our city divided in half along Interstate I-30. 87% of the tax base is above I-30. Only 13% is below. And below I-30 is a land expanse that is bigger than the cities of Denver and Seattle combined, bigger than Atlanta. So you're talking about a vast uh, space of, of poverty. Uh, we, we led the nation in childhood poverty for years. I think we're now number three. We lead the nation in single household renters a part of the legacy of redlining in our community. I can go on and on and on. Uh, in, in our county, black people earn only 54 cents to a white person's dollar. Latino people, 58 cents to 
to white person dollar, white person dollar. We have the most uninsured uh, big city population in Dallas than any other place in America. And so very few people know this history. They think of the Cowboys. They think of the TV show Dallas. Um, they think of oil and get, you know, they think of all these kind of things. And in fact, Dallas um, is America's capital of functional white supremacy. And as I say, white supremacy comes with the body count. And uh, we have to count the bodies in Dallas to truly give testimony to the horrors that have been experienced. Wow. Wow. Well, now I know I need to read that chapter. I just, I just got a copy of the book just a couple of days ago, so I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but that's going to be uh, on the top of my list now. Um, you mentioned that you've done some recent work around, you know, removing Confederate statues. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yes. Um, you know, as an AME pastor, uh, and I think all persons of goodwill were uniquely impacted by this horror, but as an AME pastor, when Dylan Roof went into one of our churches and massacred nine individuals in cold blood, including the pastor, um, it really was a turning point. And although our church had spoken out against uh, images of the Confederacy for generations, that was not new. As a matter of fact, uh, the man who married my parents, Bishop John Hurst Adams, now deceased Bishop in Amy Church, when he served in South Carolina, he would not allow us to hold any of our national or international meetings in the state uh, because we did not want to contribute economically to a state that made room and space for monuments white supremacy. But when the horrors uh, unfolded at Mother Emanuel Amy Church, um, and I received calls from across the country and was asked to speak out, and as a matter of fact, about a month after the tragedy, I was in South Carolina to speak uh, in Charleston and paid my respects and bore witness myself to the bullet holes in the walls and in the floor and was told by Brother Nathaniel, a trustee of the church, uh, where he pointed to a, a group of round tables and said, that's where most of the killing happened. Um, that left a, a, a major impact and you know, renewed our commitment to purge our nation of images of white supremacy. There have been persons in the city of Dallas, very courageous people who have sought to remove these uh, icons of white supremacy for generations, but could never really uh, build a, a momentum, if you will, in the city uh, to bring that to bear. And so uh, as it became clear that that opportunity might emerge again, uh, I was a part of a group of individuals and activists and scholars who leaned into that work. Um, and a part of that meant that I was speaking in the, in the company of members of the Klan and the alt-right and neo-Confederates face-to-face before Dallas's largest monument uh, that stood in downtown Dallas, uh, over 60 foot tall monument to white supremacy dating back to 1897 when it was completed. Uh, the work began in 1896. Interestingly enough, our encounter, uh, that particular encounter uh, has now become viral uh, because uh, 
last week tonight with John Oliver showed a, a part of that encounter in one of its segments on the Confederacy. And so about two or three times a year, it goes viral again. And people reach out to me about uh, the commentary I shared with uh, those persons in the park. Um, but what I discovered in that experience was that although Dallas uh, wanted to promote itself as a city committed to diversity and progress, that that actually was not our makeup. That there were persons who position, positioned themselves as progressives or moderates who did everything in their power to keep this monument to white supremacy erect. Even after we had a great tragedy that I actually was a part of as well, where five police officers were murdered in downtown Dallas, July 7, 2016, after a rally in March, a peaceful rally in March, following the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. I was one of the speakers on that fateful night and helped to lead the impromptu march and actually offered the benediction at the, at the end of that march. And it was while we were leaving on our way back to our vehicles to depart um, that the shooting began. Uh, so after that unfortunate event, Dallas really began speaking about its commitment to uh, racial justice and racial equity and healing and restoration. And so bringing down Confederate monuments to white supremacy proved to be the very first test as to whether or not we were actually fully committed to uh, allowing this new resolve to actually impact our landscape. And uh, I saw in real time how um, white supremacy operates, how individuals who, again, suggested they were progressives and moderates, did everything they could to try to block the removal of the monument uh, and I also saw that Dallas was a city void of black political power in the city uh, because there were persons who were elected to serve who very clearly had others who were telling them what to do. Um, and I will never forget this day as we pressed to and worked with and fought against to bring down the monument on April 25th, 2018, which is in fact the same day that the Urban Institute released this report, I saw black men sitting around the city council chamber uh, being puppeted to stand up against the removal of the monument. Um, I have no way of confirming that this is the case, but only a few weeks after this happened, uh, several millions of dollars were released into Southern districts uh, that are kind of black led. And it made me think that maybe this was a trade-off for standing against removing these monuments of white supremacy. Wow. Well, we continued, we continued our activism. We continued to push um, even to the point, which is included in the book, of a direct action against the city on Martin Luther King's birthday. Uh, we made a declaration, we being a number of a black clergy persons now known as the Dallas black clergy, we made a commitment to each other that we would not allow the city of Dallas to misrepresent Dr. King's name. That uh, a city that stood in opposition to the very things that Dr. King was willing to die for uh, should not then use him 
uh, as a buffer against justice. And so we shut down a relaying ceremony and made demands of the council persons that were there. Amongst those demands were to bring down the Confederate monuments, to provide earned paid sick leave to over 300,000 Dallas residents who were without it, to uh, overhaul the Citizens Police Review Board uh, because it had been nearly 50 years since an officer in our city had been convicted of murdering a Dallas citizen, Dallas resident. And I will say thankfully because of that action, we saw monuments uh, being voted down. Uh, we saw the passage of uh, a resolution in support of mandating, making policy uh, to have earned paid sick leave for all workers in the city. We saw the overhaul of the Citizens Review Board all within the next three months. And it served as a reminder of what type of activism and type of work is actually needed in this country to bring about the changes that we desire. Uh, I am grateful to say that in the midst of this pandemic, uh, even with the harrowing summer that we experienced, finally this summer, uh, because it had been caught up in litigation, the last standing Confederate monument in the city of Dallas came down. Wow. How many, how many monuments was that? Until so you, had, you, had, you had the 1896 monument, the uh, Civil War Memorial, they called it, the 60-foot monument uh, that was uh, erected and had the governor of Texas and others there for that. And then you had a monument in the former Lee Park uh, dedicated to Robert E. Lee, which is particularly stunning because Franklin Delano Roosevelt was present for the dedication of that monument, as was D.W. Griffin, who produced uh, Birth of a Nation, you know, which actually brought forth uh, dramatic increases in the roles of the Klan nationally. Well, that one came down first, and then we were able to fight to bring the other down, two very prominent um, monuments within <clears throat> our city and uh, to make it illegal to erect them in public spaces again. Wow. Wow. Well, congratulations on that. Talk about perseverance to make something important, really important happen. I think it's a victory for the generation, for everyone who came before us who worked uh, towards this regard, for the many women and men who I stood shoulder to shoulder with. You know, after Heather Hyde was killed in uh, Charlottesville, a crowd of nearly 5,000 Dallasites came down to City Hall to demand that our monuments to white supremacy would come down. But I think the greatest victory, the greatest victory is for our children. For the first time since 1896, there are black, brown, and white children growing up in a city that has not made physical space available to monuments to white supremacy. To me, that means something. It's a hopeful reality. Uh, that I think can create a very hopeful future for us. Mm. Well, you know, I have to be admit to being one of the people in the 2016 election that was surprised that, you know, bigotry and racism was as large a percentage of our country as it turned out to be. Mm. Um, I knew it was there. I didn't think it was anywhere near 
the amount, you know, the percentage of the population is that indicated that it was. And then I have to admit to being surprised again in 2020 mm-hmm. that even more white people voted that way than was the case in 2016. Yes. And um, so thank God for, you know, the work that, that you and so many that have come before you have done. And, you know, of all the problems that came about in 2020, one of the things that I think was pretty positive was that, you know, more and more of this stuff is getting um, illuminated. Yes, I would <laughs> lack of a better term. <laughs> yes. I, and, and I think that is going to be um, maybe the, the thing that we remember the most, uh, the light that was shown upon these historic and present inequities and the opportunities that are now provided for us to uh, change the world, change our nation for sure. You know, the final chapter of the book is entitled, Can a Virus Heal America? And uh, that speaks to the power of the coronavirus to remind us of our shared humanity. (coughs) I will never call the coronavirus a gift because it has harmed too many and uh, too many mourn because of it. But the coronavirus did create us an opportunity uh, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because frankly, that's the only way you beat it is by having concern, not just for yourself, but for those around you. You wear a mask, not just for yourself, but because of those around you, you socially distance, not just for yourself, but for those around you. And you begin to think, politically and policy wise, not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. You begin to say, you know what? I might have health care, but my neighbor doesn't. Um, so let's get my neighbor health care because that will make for a healthier community. Um, I might have income now, but my neighbor doesn't. What does it look like to live in a world or a nation at least that has a guaranteed income? You know, I think that the coronavirus provides us an opportunity to heal America because again, it reminded us of our shared humanity, uh, a virus that while it has had significant harm on indigenous black and brown communities, is still uh, non-discriminatory in terms of its reach. Uh, That we have had white affluent persons and white poor die all the same, uh, elderly as well as young. And I think that Dr. King's sainted words that we are tied together in a network of mutuality uh, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere was illuminated this summer and at least gives us an opportunity should we take it to finally work to heal our country well let's hope so i mean uh as as we've been saying i mean it's never been illuminated as brightly as broadly it seems like uh, as it has been more recently. So let's hope we can galvanize enough support to do something about it. Yes. To finally deal with some of these issues that have been around for centuries that haven't been dealt with. Yes. Yes, indeed. And, and, and I think that's the important thing is that, uh, you know, and also losing John Lewis and CT Vivian and so many others this summer reminded us of the cost of change that, you know, bringing about change in our country is going to take more than marches and prayer services. It always has. And I think we were reminded of that this summer 
that the issues before us, while I am one who is a proponent of prayer, uh, I know that our prayers require action, that faith without works is dead, and uh, that there is a cost that must be paid. Uh, there are sacrifices that must be made in order for change to come. And so I think this summer reminded us of that all the same. Well, Michael, I, I really want to thank you for all the work that you've done for bringing out this new book, um, for all the work that I know that you're going to continue to do. And, um, you know, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to share everything with us too. Brian, it's my delight. I'm hopeful that as, as people engage the book, they will be inspired and encouraged to continue to be part of the work and that we will remain in the vein of doing the work until, as God spoke through the prophet Amos, until that day where justice flows like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. There is, in fact, something in the water that something is white supremacy, but we have the power together, co-laboring with God to purify the waters. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again, Michael. Thank you very much.